Good morning, not Nancy Rommelman. I am happy to be not Nancy Rommelman and to to be helping out while she's out there uh, saving the world. This is Matt Welch. Um, If you don't know who Matt Welch is, uh, I've written a short introduction. Can I read this? Yes. Is that going to make you uncomfortable? Yes, it is going to make me uncomfortable, but I'll listen. Fantastic. Matt Welch is one third of the podcast, The Fifth Column. He's an editor at large at Reason, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. You may have seen him on Bill Maher or know that he's tight with Nancy Rommelman since he has the distinction of being the person most name dropped on this podcast, though Joe Rogan is coming up fast. (laughs) His name, Matt Welch, is almost annoyingly, distractingly close to Matt Walsh a conservative commentator from The Daily Wire. So if you tuned in to wrestle over the question, what is a woman, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> but if you came for crackling intelligence, wit, and a solid Gen X pop sensibility, you're in for a treat. Matt Welch, welcome to Smoke em If You Got Him. Thank you. That's very, very, very nice. Um, Matt Walsh and I um, uh, occasionally have been uh, booked <laughs> on like television or radio where they thought we were the other one. Which no is, way. Yeah. Uh, it happened at least once um, on TV and they just kind of rolled with it. Uh, I think it was Fox. It might have even been CNN, though. Um, and then uh, certainly on radio. And uh, at, I, on one of the cases on radio, I do remember that about halfway through, they're like, oh, OK, <laughs> we're not going to talk about vaginas or whatever. Um, so, uh, um, all good. So I went to your Wikipedia page this morning um, to see if you had one, uh, which you do. And I also learned that there's like, like in addition to like for the conservative commentator, Matt Walsh, click here. It also says for the American bagpiper, see Matthew Welch. Yes. Uh, I've probably annoyed all these people because I was, even though I lived in uh, Eastern Europe and I have to mention that by law in the first one minute, um, uh, in the 90s, uh, and so I felt like I was late to the internet when I came back in 1998, uh, turned out not to be, sort of. So uh, I, I like, you know, mattwelch.com is mine, and I get the Matt Welch on Twitter, although someone else had it for a while. Um, don't have it on Instagram, um, so I, I'm, I think I'm at the real Matt Welch on Instagram. <laughs> just I, I just think that you should start uh, bagpiping, if that's a verb. I hate bagpipes almost oh as much as I hate that horrible little like plaintive hobbit flute in all the other ways. Pan flute, pretty... the pan flute. Pan flute. God, I would, I would, <laughs> I would do Matt Walsh like disgusting activities with a pan flute if I encountered one in the wild. Uh, there's just something about it uh, when, whenever it appears in any context, in any movie, in any documentary, you know, there's just going to be these wet eyed little hobbits like pining <laughs> for the motherland and oh maybe some potatoes and just like no stop it stop with the twee shit um i love our irish and scottish and other uh, friends and i just hate all your uh, instrumentations unless it's being played at like you know uh, shane mcgowan's funeral then we can we can be okay with that for sure bagpipes are actually like a nice flex at a funeral i think yes um, I don't like them in a just sort of like St. Patrick's Day march or a yeah. cop parade in New York. Nope. Unless that cop parade is funeral. And then yeah, all your bagpipes are fine. And that's and that's or a wedding too. 
a, a great friend of mine uh, got married at like a VFW Hall in New Jersey, and there wow. were bagpipes and tin flutes involved, and little you know, fife and drums, whatever those words mean. The fife part I don't get, um, and it was awesome. Like if you're gonna do that, then you know, get married in the skirt. Then okay, uh, yeah. if you're, that level of commitment I will reward. Otherwise, um, don't be shocked if I send drone strikes uh, against your bagpipe core. <laughs> um, so I started listening to the fifth column in the summer of 2020, the oh. fateful summer of 2020, after the George Floyd incident, and specifically after the Barry Weiss um, exit from the New York Times and the James Bennett meltdown. And I just felt like I was losing my mind. I felt really gaslit by the media. And it was this enormous relief. You know, it was a pleasure to listen to you guys, but it was also this re huge relief to tune into this show and hear three smart people talking the way I once understood journalists to talk to each other. Um, I'm wondering, did the podcast get bigger that summer? Was that the moment when the show kind of exploded for you guys? Yeah, um, uh, in a couple of different ways, like at in at different inflection points, we get a rush of people who come in and the reaction is almost always the same, which is like, um, you make me feel like I'm not going insane, uh, which yeah. is a very uh, it, it's interesting. And and, uh, um, and I'm still like trying to process what that means because it's just kind of fascinating. I mean, podcasts, as you know, are really way more intimate than any kind of media experience, really much more. I mean, television, which I used to be on with Camille uh, Foster um, uh, on uh, Fox Business Network, along with our uh, great friend uh, MTV's Kennedy, speaking of Gen X, superstars. Um, and television, if people s uh, encounter you there, it's not there. You are not their friend. Um, no. <laughs> you are someone who's like in this unattainable place you're coming down from the mountain and sort of sending out signals and so if people see you they might like uh, be scared but um yeah. in podcasts you are their their friend their drinking buddy um maybe not in your case but um uh, but like you're welcome <laughs> at the bar you guys, anyways you guys are my drinking buddy i'm just not drinking <laughs> yeah which is the of, best part of it we get a lot of that too i mean actually in 2020 a lot of what we heard from people was They've been cut off. They've been cut off from their friends, from the bar, from their church mm -hmm. and their community. And so we simulated um, that uh, experience, which they no longer were having. Yeah. Um, and also they were, I mean, 2020, Nancy and I have been talking about this lately and, and hopefully we'll convert this into some kind of editorial product in the future. Uh, and I've written about this for a reason a little bit. I think 2020 is just bigger, a lot bigger. Um, than we have been able to digest or comprehend. It was too much stuff. Um, and you mentioned the George Floyd. I, I wrote a piece uh, for Reason after that summer, just talking about the media's nervous breakdown of that summer. It was insane. I mean, uh, we, we've forgotten about the smaller bits. I mean, we remember Barry Weiss and James Bennett, the New York Times, a few of these things. But like, the Poetry Foundation in Chicago oh, lost God. its ever-loving mind. Oh, God. Go back and look at that. Oh, there was a, uh, I, I think uh, the head of a art museum in San Francisco answered a question semi-inelegantly, like "Off with your head!" It was insane. <laughs> yes. What it was, was insane. happening? Um, it was and we've, we've kind of forgotten about that. And and like COVID itself was just like too big and too, like you know, I was uh, talking 
with Liz Wolf over at Reason. Um, uh, they put me on a, a, a podcast the other day, and she was sort of like re-reminding me of the horror, horrifying kind of school policies in New York having to do with COVID. And I just felt like this long buried blood pressure beginning to rise again. So like it's too big. And so the fifth column, along with other places too, um, uh, definitely helped people in that time. And we had just started, um, fifth column has been around since April fool's day of 2016. And we started our uh, our Patreon, um, our paying subscription subscription service, on uh, November seventeenth, nineteen eighty two thousand and nineteen. I I remember the number November seventeenth because that's the beginning of the Velvet Revolution. Because I, I lived in Prague. I don't think you know that. Um, <laughs> You're and, such a dork, dude. And, like who uh, knows that date? I totally know that date. It's very important. Um, and. Um, so, I mean, but think about the timing of that. Part of the our, our Patreon subscription only stuff is that we give an extra uh, uh, podcast per week to the paying subscribers. Okay. Um, so we start doing that in November of 2019. What immediately happens? Everything gets shut down. Um, right. And so we also start doing Zoom meetings. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't that where you and Nancy met? Was in a like a Zoom call up or did you guys just No, like, I think you're thinking of the Ask a Jew, Ask a Jew people they met there. Um, um, Nancy and I met because of the Atlantic piece that I wrote. And then I, oh, right, I, I very it. brazenly, um, basically invited myself on your podcast. Yes. Um, and you, uh, cra caved to my feminine charms. That's absolutely true. Um, so, but like, uh, uh, people, those zoom meetups, uh, which we just sort of did on the fly, like we, most of our uh, dumb decisions in this podcast, but that turned out okay. Um, people like just like flocked to them because again um they everyone was locked down and they couldn't uh couldn't hang out and so yeah all of those things really kind of um inflected our uh our growth uh and trajectory of things and then uh and then you know we pivoted to Substack in 2022 but even like October 7th you right the uh, the massacre in Israel huge huge spike in traffic it's weird like you don't want necessarily yeah. to be a profiteer of horrifying stuff but those are little moments in which everyone feels like they're losing their mind um especially when they're like hyper uh consuming media and you know since we started as i mentioned in 2016 what was happening in 2016 oh, like yeah. literally i think um the moment when it, we knew that donald trump really was going to be the nominee for the republican party I think it was like May 2nd or 4th or something. It was the uh, it was the Indiana primaries, the last gasp for Ted Cruz, your your sexy Texan boyfriend, Ted Cruz. <laughs> he and... is my boyfriend, but nobody knows about it. Thanks for spilling <laughs> the beans. Yeah. And uh, and so like he, he'd been around and it was he was jarring presence in our lives already from 2015, from the summer when he escalated into our lives. But that moment of like, oh, shit. This is really happening coincided with the creation of our podcast. So like all of these moments, people uh, somehow come to us. And I think, I mean, I'd like to think it's because we're really witty and smart and great and all that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of it is uh, the abdication of traditional media and for what you and I, uh, who are of semi similar ages, mm -hmm. I think, um, remember flatter, of like, flatter yourself that's fine what uh of uh of like what journalism what media what journalists are kind of supposed to be like that has changed pretty radically i think over the last 
five, 10, 20 years. And so they no longer receive that sustenance in places where they had been accustomed to it. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned before, the podcast is a much more intimate thing. So all of that combines, you know, when the media leaves the field, uh, strangely, um, then the kind of new media uh, steps in that breach. Yeah, I think you're so right about um, well, a lot of things that you said, but the 2020 year being bigger than we even understand. I, I wonder if you've listened to John Ronson's second season of Things Fall Apart yet. You know Fell darn apart. well I don't listen to podcasts. It's very rare <laughs> and special that I've listened to yours. Uh, but you. no, I, I can't. I can't put things in my ears. I'm, I'm weird. I'm like the uh, the brother in There's Something About Mary. Like if you oh. put some put something on my ears, I like freak out. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't really listen to, uh, very much, but John Ronson's fantastic. And I, from what I understand, the second season does kind of touch into the largeness of that, the derangements of that. Yeah. Well, you keep going back, you know, there's like, I don't know, eight episodes and you keep going back to, he's like, it started in March, 2020 or it Do started in May, 2020. Do his accent. Come on. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, what is it? Things fell apart. <laughs> I wonder. Hey. I, I, I'm, I, what's the Welsh accent? It's not the Welsh accent, but the yeah, Welsh. I can't do it. It's all going to be Beatles, anyways. Yeah, I know. He's so cute. That that cute. voice. Oh my gosh, he's coming on the podcast, which I'm excited about. Um, I I watched a documentary about 1968 last night. Um, and and part of what I was wondering about, I mean, because that is such an explosive year, is in my mind. I'm kind of going like, gosh, which one was worse, right? Um, and it's really hard to say because in 68, you just have like, I mean, MLK dies. That's incredible. It's, it's so awful. And then fucking Robert F. Kennedy gets shot and it's so awful. And Vietnam is raging and the conventions are such a shit show. And I was like, I think 68 was worse. But then I was thinking about 2020 and I was like, but we had a pandemic. It's um, I'm fascinated with with 1968 because it's my birth year. So mm. I'm older than you. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and I remember uh, going to college and stealing some of my older siblings uh, records and putting on those early uh, Chicago records. I can say that safely on this podcast because Nancy's nowhere uh, within. Uh, she can't stop me. Uh, <laughs> she hates Chicago with a white hot passion. But it was back when Chicago was still called Chicago Transit Authority. You're talking name. about the band Chicago, not yeah, the yeah, city yeah, Chicago. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, they so they had you know, there were everything was a double album and on like side three or four of, you know, Chicago Transit Authority. Um, they had uh, this song. Um, or a whole side, and it was just basically called, uh, I believe, Prelude to August 29, 1968, and well, for a, a short bit, and then like 25 minutes of August 29, 1968, and then like maybe a little postscript or something. I'm like, gosh, what happened on that day? Because uh, I was a dumb 18-year-old, yeah. and you know, all of history uh, taught to us Gen Xers ended at uh, World War Two because it just totally was, it was just too messy afterwards. Like ah, maybe we'll tell you a little bit of Mar Martin Luther King, but that's about it. Like we're just not gonna, you know, sixties or or too uh, uh, weird. Um, and so I'm listening to it and and hearing this chant. Uh, the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. And I was also very deep in thrall of uh, Hunter Thompson 
uh, early in my career, like a lot of idiot boy journalists and some <laughs> girls do. Um, and uh, and he, he, you know what? We make fun of. I make fun of Hunter S. Thompson, but like he is the rhythm of his sentences and the the kind the I don't know. It's he's kind of he's cool kind of. It's there's a there's an electricity there. It's yeah. it's like it's deep American writing or like that writing yeah. is imprinted deep among us. And that's because he was aping Hemingway very consciously yeah. and typing his sentences through. But anyways, he would always, he couldn't write about what happened at the convention. The convention to me was like this black hole is a mystery. It was so bad and so awful. And then I began yeah. reading and looking into it. And one of my um, greatest professors, I don't think I actually took a class from him, but he was a, a great friend. He's still there. Um, a sociology professor at UC Santa Barbara named Dick Flax, Richard Flax. Um, super lefty. I think he was an SDS and, and, uh, and that stuff. And he was there in 68 and his hands are permanently dis or his, I think his right hand is permanently disfigured by being beaten on the head, uh, with a truncheon by a cop. And just like, it's just horrifying. Uh, so like we can't, the level of political violence in 1968 is unfathomable, not just the Martin Luther King assassination. Remember, it's also the riots that erupted all oh, over God. the country yeah. and that are visible to this day from space, the scars of which, right? Wow. It's insane. I um, was, I, I once looked at the number of, uh, of U.S. Uh, deaths in Vietnam in 1968. More Americans died in Vietnam in 1968 that then have died in all subsequent wars that America has been involved with combined. Yeah. Wow. Combined, right? So 68 was super bad. We're not at 1968. Um, 2020 wasn't maybe as bad as 1968. But also, let's remember that 1968, unlike 2020, has a bunch of kind of good, um, or at least people associate it as a revolutionary year, right? Um, in France, you know, if you were a 68er, you have this youthful rebellion against the patriarchal on Catholic states, um, students were were uh, going to the barricades. You have all this great music. You have this art sort of breaking through um, in Czechoslovakia, where I used to live. Um, they, you know, uh, you have Prague Spring, which initially was fantastic, wonderful thing happening, yeah. and then the Soviets came and and uh, uh, again in August of 1968 and uh, clamped down on it. So, but it was a mix, right? Like people re could refer to themselves as Václav Havel uh, always did, as being of the 68 generation. It was understood that we we're revolutionaries. We we're having a great time. Who's going to use that for the 2020? Yeah, I'm a 2020 generation person. Like, no, dude, 2020 sucked. There isn't a way that 2020 did not suck for everybody involved, except for maybe some, you know, the bottom line of some podcasters, but that's not really <laughs> uh, great for society. But uh, uh, no, it was really bad. And the after effects were just it's a, I really think it's a pig in the python type of thing. Um, totally changed the trajectory of public education in this country of political violence, I believe, um, with the violence after George Floyd. And like that has a boomerang effect on January 6th in, in a certain way. Um, we're just in this weird place where we have not totally um, understood what happened then and how to like reroute or, you know, rewire things so that, that we don't keep going in a bad direction because of it. So I had been listening to the fifth column for probably a few months when I realized, and I, I, I don't know if it was something you said or something I heard about the podcast, that it was a libertarian podcast. And I was taken aback. I was like, am I libertarian? 
Mm. Because I, I agreed with most everything you said, but you also mostly talked about journalism. So my question for you is, what does it even mean to be libertarian? And I know not, this question might sound very basic, but I'm curious, like, what are the foundational beliefs of a libertarian these days? So I'll separate them out. First of all, we're not a libertarian podcast. So you probably okay. missed the word not. Um, as uh, Camille uh, Foster would say, we are uh, we over index. Uh, for libertarianism on the podcast and among our listeners, but quite separate from the Reason Roundtable and, and Reason Magazine, which I work for, which is explicitly a libertarian publication. Um, uh, uh, part of what the fifth column does, it takes on the spirit of the aforementioned show that we did on Fox Business, which was called The Independence. And it was called that for a reason, which is that, you know, we we're not here to tell you what to think. Um, we welcome all are welcome uh, in this in this church. Um uh, you know, we're not telling people who to vote for and that they're bad people because they're voting in that way. Um, one of the greatest things about the community that has evolved around us in our listener hood and ship is that they all kind of intrinsically understand that they're not supposed to agree about politics. Like the thing that they kind of agree at on is like a sense of humor about things and and also just a tolerance that you don't often see when people who are hyper political in democratic and Republican circles. So um, that throat clear done libertarianism. There's as uh, my colleague at reason, Brian Doherty, who's a, a historian of the movement has written a lot of uh, books about it, most notably radicals for capitalism, which is a history of the libertarian movement. Um, uh, he's put it at various times, like, look, it's in your Jefferson. It's, you know, that which governs best or that which governs least governs best um, kind of just basic enlightenment, um, separation of powers, fear of concentrated uh, or distrust of concentrated political authority. Um, there are different flavors of it. A lot of libertarianism comes from a very philosophical point of view, um, like just the root principles, people who are involved in the libertarian party. I'll have to talk about the non-aggression principle, sort of everything boils down to, um, you know, don't you know, as Matt Kibbe, who's uh, who's big in the movement, uh, has in the title of one of his books, don't hurt me and don't take my stuff um, kind of thing. Uh, and I'm a little bit massacring that. So it's a kind of these combination of things, but it's the general insight that you don't want concentrations of state power um, of the people who have the guns telling you what to do. Uh, you want to reduce that and you want to expand the sort of private zone of human flourishing and discovery and uh, and so forth. Um, so you don't have to be a libertarian at all to um, to enjoy um, or take some nourishment from the fifth column. And nor do you from Reason magazine either. You know, Reason is explicitly libertarian, but um, it's been around since 1968, like uh, many good things. And uh, they made a decision. We had we did a, uh, an oral history again, Brian Doherty, for the 40th anniversary of the magazine in, in 2008 when I was the editor in chief. Um, and they had a choice to make in the early 1970s, like. Are we going to be the in-house newsletter for libertarianism or are we going to be sort of an outreach into Normalville uh, uh, explaining mm -hmm. kind of what, you know, or, or presenting journalism and commentary, but from a libertarian point of view so that they're aware of that, um, but still interfacing with those people. And um, I don't think I would have ever been attracted to the magazine had they not made that decision to be, as they put it, sort of an outreach magazine rather than we are going to be the place that adjudicates all libertarian arguments and says who is and who is not a libertarian. A lot of people like to do that. Reason never has. 
Well, this is reminding me that probably around 2005 is when I became aware of Reason Magazine. And I had found something and I can't even remember what the topic was, but I was like, oh, this is really good. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is a libertarian magazine. So now this is bringing up for me. I've been told by a friend that I'm libertarian adjacent at the very least. So when you when I asked you to describe libertarianism, you you talked philosophically and in ways that my poor little brain doesn't work because I took civics in summer school and high school because everybody got an A. And I just haven't thought that much about what kind of what kind of government I want. Um, I liked Obama um, mostly because I thought he was such a good writer. I mean, he was such a such an eloquent speaker. He was like somebody I wanted to know. But like, I also am aware that that might not be a good metric for who you want to be the president of the United States. But this is a, I, I'm, can you drill down a little bit more into the libertarian pro and con as in like, okay, so if you're a libertarian, you're pro gun, you're, are you pro abortion? That you- is, so the, the two areas, um, uh, policy areas that divide libertarians in a similar way that it divides the public at large are abortion and guns. Hmm. Um, eh, no, I'm sorry, not not uh, guns. Abortion and immigration. Guns is oh, okay. uh, is uh, is more um, uh, is more kind of settled. Um, th- so the a good way of thinking about it is um, how does issue X um, live uh, in uh, measured against like uh, among people who are skeptical and inherently distrustful of the government using force. And, and violating individual rights. The reason why abortion cuts, and, and most libertarians are pro-choice, um, um, most, but not all, uh, because there's, philosophically, there are there's a conflicting rights question. It is the right mm, of sure. women to do what they want with their bodies, and you don't want to create a prohibition regime. This is my argument against um, abortion controls, is that abortion happens everywhere. Um, and so as soon as you make it illegal, um, you are... Um, you are forgetting all the lessons of prohibition everywhere and always, which is that people are going to use the black market to do the thing that they're going to do anyways. It's going to yeah. be a lot more dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's I, the that is the majority, but there's a strong minority um, counter argument, which is that that unborn human also has rights that you're violating right. by murdering it to death. Um, so uh, I understand that um, that debate. Immigration, most libertarians tend towards a more open borders. Um, I actually never have never used that to describe myself. Um, but again, I'm not a very philosophical libertarian. I'm much more kind of, I, I consider myself a journalist first and kind of libertarian uh, is further down the line. Um, and, uh, and so, and I, so I also see that open border scares the hell out of people. And I think that you should be able to say not all, you know, 7 billion people can move to this country. Um, there should be some kind of process, but um, some libertarians uh, will make an argument um, that uh, that like this is you know the government basically has one job or two jobs, and that that's one of them, and they should do it more and stronger. Um, this is currently dividing the Libertarian Party. There's a lot more what they call bordertarians of of people who are who are trying to come in and, and have a more kind of conservative, populist, Trumpist. Um, approach towards immigration, more restrictionist. Um, and then there are other people who are very uh, strongly open borders. So that does divide people, but it lists in a direction. Definitely um, 
uh, it's a very, very common and strong libertarian belief. And all this is small L libertarian as opposed to capital L, which denotes the party, uh, political party, mm. um, uh, which, you know, I, I welcome people to look at the uh, party platform of the libertarian party, which sort of like spells out. Uh, it's not necessarily everything that I personally agree with, but this will um, that they, they have a, uh, you know, 50 years of honing the applications of this in our current politics for people who are uh, for, who are interested. Um, so on guns, libertarians are like they don't want, you know, we, we had a before I was editor, uh, when Nick Gillespie was editor, um, they had a, uh, a cover uh, story about like, uh, should you be able to own your own bazooka? That's, that's kind of where oh my God. Li- libertarians are on guns. Um, others, there are some people, uh, you know, the the uh, the way I look at it and I'm not uh, I don't enjoy guns, although they're fun to shoot, um, but mm-hmm. I, I would never consider having one uh, anywhere near me, um, uh, at least in the life that I, I currently have. Um, but it's a, a question of constitutional rights the libertarian legal movement which is one of several different uh, prongs of the thing was instrumental in uh, in the scholarship and it really was scholarship to show how uh, the, uh, the second amendment was understood to be an individual right um, this is a there's plenty of people who will say that's flatly untrue and etc um, but this is something that libertarians have have thought about and looked at for a long time and it's something that the Supreme Court now has ratified but in that ratification, um, they have said that that doesn't prevent regulation of types of guns. Um, you can do that. So we're in the middle of kind of adjudicating all of that. Um, there are plenty of libertarians who say like they really don't want the people who have the monopoly on force to tell you what kind of weapons that they can and can't have. Uh, I'm not there. I, I, I think that the government has an ability to regulate the type of guns one's had, one has, um, but also pragmatically, which is kind of where I come from all of this, usually, and the, these conversations always happen in the wake of horrific shootings, yeah. um, usually the proposed remedy in that moment for that shooting would have done nothing to that, uh, would not have affected that at all. I think that, that the problem of guns in America is that there's 400 million of them um, and that we have, um, uh, and the fact of it is that we have an individual right to them and so, and we have a violent country. So that's a pretty difficult combination to ever um, stop not just gun violence, but gun uh, self-violence. I mean, suicides are a huge uh, number of gun deaths in this country. Um, uh, And, you know, arguably why I wouldn't want to have a gun anywhere near me is that I wouldn't want to like be sad on on a day. Honestly, I've had so many uh, male friends kill themselves and they are all male. I mean, uh, it's, it's, that is actually, uh, a sort of consequence or, or, or risk of owning a gun in America. Hi, Smoke em If You Got Em listeners. This is Sarah Heppola with Nancy Rommelman. Hi. We're inviting you to listen to the rest of this conversation, but you have to subscribe. Go to smokeempodcast.substack.com slash subscribe. We hope to see you on the other side. Bye.